With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is IAQ Radio. Indoor air quality radio. The voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode number 470 of IAQ Radio. It is Friday, July 28th, 2017. We're live, and this week we welcome Andy Streifel from the University of Minnesota. We're going to talk about environmental infection control. Andy is the hospital guy that hospitals go to when they've got uh, environmental infection issues. Before we get started, we want to thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And also check out the Healthy Buildings Summit coming up on November 2nd through the 4th. And that website is healthybuildingsummit.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to report that last week there were two simultaneous correct answers to our trivia question. One came in by text and one came in by email. Our winners are John Lapoter of Florida IAQ Solutions in Winter Springs, Florida, and Vic Caffaro, Richmond, Virginia, who both identified George Elton Mayo as the father of human resource management. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, July 28, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, combining unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's question. Name the father of modern bacteriology and winner of a Nobel Prize. Back to you, Joe. Okay, today's guest is Andrew Streifel. He's a hospital environmental specialist at the University of Minnesota, 
and uh, he is uh, with the Department of Environmental Health and Safety at the University of Minnesota. And whenever there's a high profile or any hospital-acquired infection, one of the first names that comes to mind is Andy Streifel. He has been involved in the investigation of over 80 clusters of infection related to hospital air quality and other issues and or environmental quality. He has served as a consultant in over 400 hospitals worldwide on a variety of IAQ-related issues, water microbial contamination, and he has investigated clusters of bacterial infections due to unsanitary clinical practice. His current research interests involve energy management impact on infection prevention and validation of the air and water safety in healthcare facilities. Welcome, Andy. Do we have you on the line? Yes, thank you very much, Joe. Hi, it's really great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to have a few words with the folks out there. And we, we appreciate having you join us, and, and this is a topic that's been getting a lot of attention um, over the last few years, and even for you know the last decade, hospital environmental infection control. And I, I don't know if I'm seeing things, but it seemed to me there's been a little change in the terminology. They used to call these nosocomial infections, and now I'm seeing hospital-acquired infection. What, what's the right terminology and why? Healthcare-acquired uh, infections. Uh, so we, we have to think of uh, our clinics as well as our surgery centers, as well as our, our tertiary care hospitals and community hospitals. So they all have a different designation. So uh, what they're doing pretty much is standardizing the healthcare acquired. And of course, that comes from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services because uh, that is a big contributor to uh, healthcare uh, uh, reimbursements uh, out there. So we really have to follow their rules and it's healthcare acquired. So they're HAIs now. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, those acomial people didn't really know what that meant, and so it's it's really a matter of of putting it into the proper terminology. And healthcare acquired, while I still like nosocomial, is is really the true term. Okay. You know, and, and I really think when, when it came to nose, when it came to nosocomial, I think a lot of people thought it came from, you know, people picking their nose and so on and so forth, and they didn't know what the word meant. Well, when you when you look at the types of infections that are out there, by far the most uh, imposing infection that we have today is Clostridium difficile, uh, and that is either um, um, environmentally spread or uh, due to antibiotic pressure. The, the large usage of of antibiotics can change the microflora, and we we it is speculated that we all harbor it. So. Uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg, that's very difficult. But that, that is one particular disease where people have documented that approximately 30% of the people who go into a room that has previously been occupied by someone with C. diff ends up with the disease. So uh, there was some um, concern about uh, that in, in the hospital environment. And it has really promoted uh, uh, better cleaning because of the resistance of those spores even have to be very careful how you uh, um, take up that dirty laundry because uh, you can't aerosolize those spores if they've had a chance to dry out. So uh, we, do, we do have to be very careful uh, with, with the bacteria that are there and, and certainly those airborne spread microbes. TB, there is a resurgence of tuberculosis again uh, in this country, and uh, um, that is an airborne spread bug. Hmm. Let's, 
let's look at the big picture a little bit. How common are these? You mentioned that 30% of people who go into a room after someone has been there with C. diff end up with C. diff, if I, if I captured that properly. Um, in general, yes. how many people that go into a hospital end up with some kind of, you know, HAI and or, um, let's see, what types of people most commonly get these HAIs? Well, that's that's tough to predict exactly who's going to get these HAIs, but the reality is that, uh, again, depending on the group, the type of patients, for example, if you have a, a pancreas transplant, there's a 50% chance you're going to get an infection. But if you go in just to have uh, a wart removed, there's a, a slight chance. So it, it all depends on the type of surgery and, and the exposure. Burn patients, of course, are going to be much more susceptible. So often we see uh, the compromised individual getting most of the infections. And because medical technology has advanced as far as it has, we do very heroic medicine keeping people alive uh, with diseases such as the liver failure or, or even uh, leukemia, uh, where they normally would not have uh, lived not too many years ago. So uh, it's a matter of, of dealing with the difficult and, of course, uh, how you keep the environment clean is extremely difficult, and and uh, uh, especially with the fact that uh, if you have a gastrointestinal disorder and you have loose stools, uh, that can really contaminate the environment. And so it's it's very difficult to keep that spread under control. But again, with the fact that today uh, Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services is putting restrictions on uh, microorganisms. For example, if you come in uh, and do not have, and hospitals are screening, uh, a multidrug-resistant Staph aureus, MRSA, uh, um, you, if you do not have it and you acquire it, you might not be reimbursed for that under the, the Medicare uh, system. So it's incentivizing hospitals today to really pay close attention to handwashing pay very close attention to the, the readmission uh, um, of, of patients because of, of an infection. So uh, there is a, a monetary incentive to do well with respect to that. And with the gadgetry, the, the, the technology, even endoscopes, uh, and the wonderful saving uh, of lives that they are capable of doing, they are also uh, sophisticated plumbing systems, and something like a, an endoscope can transmitted disease that it could be acquired from the water supply in in your uh, endoscope uh, processing co- uh, room. So certainly we have to be careful, and, and that's why uh, there are standards uh, to manage uh, these kinds of infections. And they say about 2 to 4 million, 2 to 3 million people develop an infection every year, and about 70,000 today die. Uh, that number is improving in the sense that it's dropping, and because of the uh, uh, incentives, if you will, to to minimize the infections in order to save money. I, I've got a little follow-up, actually two, but let, let's start with um, some more basics. We talked about aerosol spread, the potential for, you know, airborne contaminants, but in talking to you the other day and preparing for the show, I got the impression it was more common for these health-acquired infections, healthcare-acquired infections, to be transmitted through 
contact, not necessarily inhalation. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? The the percent that is from you know touching something or uh, some instrument touching them, or maybe the linens or something like that, as opposed to inhaling some type of uh, infectious organism. Yes, that the infectious pulmonary spread certainly is is an issue. Uh, by far, there's a greater number of uh, of uh, infections caused in hospitals uh, from contact spread, either an individual touching with staph aureus or an E. coli on their hands, or perhaps even acquiring a fungal infection uh, from uh, an airborne uh, defect. Uh, a, a common defect would be uh, a leaky air handling system. In other words, the filters were not properly installed. I generally do not have problems with filters. Filters are properly made. Uh, if they're properly installed and maintained, they work very well. But generally speaking, sometimes the filters don't fit the housing. There's leakage, there's blow-by, and I can't tell you the number of, of times that that has been the case. Uh, the interesting thing about our country is that uh, um, it generally is that uh, we worry about regulation. Uh, the true regulators in this country are really the lawyers. And the lawsuits that come in, uh, which, again, I'm sworn to secrecy most of the time, are, are not properly vetted. They're not properly uh, uh, brought to the public uh, so that we can uh, adjust accordingly. Uh, so there is this underlying uh, issue of especially environmentally spread microorganisms uh, being suppressed in, in, in the name of legal uh, issues. So... Uh, you can find them, but yet they're they're uh, 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 not that uh, evident as you might see in a publication. I think uh, uh, some of those kinds of, of situations are are difficult. And even though it's a fungus, perhaps that's causing the disease, it it might be contact spread. And I've had calls from many hospitals through the years under these kinds of circumstances. Uh, for example, the phycomycetes, the the rhizopus, the mucor. Uh, uh, which are very common bread mold kinds of microorganisms, uh, um, can grow in, in a moist environment and come in contact with the patient for a number of different reasons. So it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, to, to uh, realize which ones are really airborne spread. Certainly those fungus can get into a lung if, it's, uh, if the aerosol is generated close by. But um, most of the, the uh, fungal infections that I have seen in hospitals they're caused by Aspergillus fumigatus or, or some other uh, um, microorganisms that's capable of growing at body temperature. And there really is the limiting factor. Not that many microorganisms actually grow at uh, body temperature, but those that do the composting uh, uh, do, and those are the ones we worry about for especially the immune-compromised patient. Uh, and so they require special protection high filtration, air changes, and pressurization to, con <laughs> pardon me, control the flow of air. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. So, I, I've got another question sort of related to that. You know, we you were talking a little bit about the legal cases, and, you know, they're, the lawyers oftentimes drive how things are being done. And um, I'm wondering, you know, when you've got an infection that and someone died, 
and typically these people, as you mentioned before, are already in pretty dire straits. So they may have been going through a uh, organ transplant or, you know, cancer patients, etc. How difficult is it to determine whether it was the infection that caused the disease, the, the death or the underlying cause um, or the underlying disease that caused the death? I had a, the extreme privilege of being able to take care of patients when I was quite a bit younger and I worked as a dialysis technician. In those days, it was easy to read the charts, and I was always amazed by the fact that you get to one page, and it's called the problem page. What are these patients' problems? And while the underlying disease might be kidney failure, uh, some infection, maybe seven or eight down on that list, is the one that's killing them. So you never know what is going to do someone in. For example, if you had a problem, you got massive dose of drugs, you may end up with a liver malfunction, and that liver, liver malfunction may affect your ability to clot the blood, and that may end up causing internal bleeding, which may end up killing the patient. Or you may end up with sepsis, and the sepsis is causing your blood to pool. You're weak and had a problem. I saw a young man that had uh, an appendectomy that went bad and when I was a lot, lot younger. And it, it, it was just a sepsis that, that did him in. Uh, so it, it, you never know. Uh, um, each patient is a complicated uh, um, endeavor of, of healing, and it certainly is a scientific art. Uh, to be able to to manage a patient properly, and uh, patients get in better, get better in spite of what we do with them, uh, do to them, and they also get worse in spite of what we do for them. So it's very, very hard to say what a patient's going to do if they have, let's say, for example, end-stage liver disease, and they're not going to transplant that patient again. The reality is the hospital, regardless what kills them, takes the hit. That's a sentinel event. And there needs to be a root cause analysis of those kinds of things when they happen. And hospitals are faced with that in order to, to justify their funding. And hospitals get in trouble by not being able to control those infections. And a lot of times it's due to the patient populations they choose to serve. So it's a rock and a hard place. You know, we, I want to get into how you do one of these inspections in a moment, but I've got a text question I'd like to ask you, um, and it says, I'll give you the question as the listener t- uh, wrote it, progress has been made in skin contact technology, but uh, has respiratory protection like surgical masks versus a respirator maybe not kept up? Um, can you talk a little bit about surgical masks versus using a, a respirator for Uh, working with patients that are really severely immune compromised? Well, they're they're in, of course, is is an issue. If a patient has has neutropenia, let's say no white cells, and usually that's less than 500 per whatever unit volume, uh, and when they have that, we take precautions by putting on, uh, in, in most instances, a surgical mask. Why? Because it protects from the expectorations of talking, uh, on sneezing, coughing. When we want to protect, of course, the individual, uh, um, we try to put a respirator, an N95 is, uh, uh, is one that is common, but then you have to be mindful of that patient being short of breath. Uh, uh, so there, there is a real difficult uh, uh, 
interplay here between the physiological aspects of a very ill patient who is short of breath um, because they've just been cut up really bad uh, because they got a, a, a kidney transplant, let's say. And, and it, it, it's not that easy. But fortunately today, we do things way different than when I started in this business. We really pushed the patient to get moving, but some patients can't get moving. And a good example of that are the bone marrow transplant patients who stay in the hospital for 40-some days uh, before that's uh, uh, the, the worst kind of bone marrow transplantation, of course. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it's really very difficult to, to say who's going to get it. Uh, um, it. It just might be, you know, I got two knees replaced, and I was bound and determined that I wasn't going to get get that. And so I scrubbed myself very good many days before they even asked me to start scrubbing. And then I was very careful about wound care and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it paid off, I guess. It's, hmm. it's really hard to say. Before Cliff, before we go into performing the actual investigation, do you have anything you wanted to follow up on? I, I want Andy to, to comment on something. And, you know, you know, historically, you know, back in the days when, when they first started surgery and, and so on and so forth, and, you know, it was before sterilization, it was before hand washing, and I think doctors at that point didn't think that they needed to do some of these things. And, you know, one of the things that, that's always bothered me, you know, when I visited someone in the hospital is that the doctors go from patient to patient and they normally wash their hands and they, you know, normally take a shower and, and launder their clothes and, and so on and so forth. And the one thing that they don't tend to clean often is ties. And I wonder if any hospital has anything to do with the doctor's ties because, you know, if we think about it, they wear them and they don't change them. And, you know, they put it in their closet and they wear it again. And it just always seemed to me that doctors should not be allowed to wear ties. And you know, somehow I thought that there was a, a tie-in, you know, uh, with ties and, and some sort of hospital infection. I was just wondering if you could comment on it. Well, there, there are lots of inanimate objects, uh, the, the fomite, if you will, that, that we need to be concerned about. And certainly ties are, are amongst them. And um, I believe I just reviewed a paper here not too long ago where, which talked about the microbial contamination of ties, stethoscopes, uh, your personal assistant cell phone. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, there are just so many things. Uh, and some hospitals now have got cell phone disinfecting systems. You've got to be kidding me. But it is a reality because you touch your phone constantly. Uh, um, and they have done uh, not necessarily the, the analysis with uh, uh, molecular, I mean, uh, with, with uh, just plain microbial, but they do molecular analysis of these things. And it's astonishing what's in our environment, especially when you think about the microbiome. We do not live in a sterile environment. There's no way. It is, there, it is said that we have only learned to culture about 10% of the microorganisms that are actually present uh, in our environment. So there's lots of potential out there. Uh, there's lots of potential in the biofilm and all of those kinds of things that do form. So ties are just one of many. I did an analysis just recently of, of the environment that was coming of a, of a multi-drug resistant uh, patient that was unique to the state of Minnesota. And when I went and looked at the, at the environment, the curtains were <laughs> filthy. I didn't find anything else. 
in in the room when I cultured it, but boy, the curtains that were used uh, were absolutely uh, astonishing how dirty they were. So you never know, and you never know what you're going to touch, where you're going to pick it up. Uh, and and we do have to have best practice for this, and and that's a, a learning process. And I think we're learning an awful lot still on on what needs to be done. But by far, the the, the most important is the, is the hand cleansing. Andy, a, a good portion of our listeners provide indoor environmental quality assessments, inspections, investigations, whatever you know, whatever you want to call them, and. Some of them also get called by, you know, health healthcare facilities. And I wonder if you could just kind of go over some of the key steps in performing, in, in your mind, a proper investigation when one of these issues comes up. Well, the first thing you need to know is what the organism is. Uh, um, generally speaking, the docs like to present uh, all the information, but you don't need all the information. You need to know if the patient was confined to the building the patients were confined to the building, or if they went outside. If they got, for example, a, a, an aspergillus, aspergillosis uh, infection, uh, um, you would want to determine whether or not the ventilation system was responsible. And so the first things we try to do is rule out whether or not it was an environmental uh, issue. And you do that with air sampling and surface sampling. Uh, surface sampling, in my mind, is almost more important than air sampling. Uh, uh, for microbial presence, uh, I can uh, analyze uh, the air in a hospital very quickly with a particle counter. Uh, particle counters, though, have that caveat where you better know what you're looking for and, and how, how to find it. So uh, with the particle counter, there's no way we can do any identification, but we can see how well the filters are working, which is really the first rule out uh, for, for the infections. A uh, very famous hospital in Baltimore, uh, they published this, I can talk about it. Uh, I was a consultant for them, and what they discovered, what we discovered when we went into their, the, their buildings was that they had a million particles inside the building. Uh, I never saw anything like that in Minnesota before, so I mean, I thought that was just had a broken machine. I took that gadget uh, to a laboratory uh, which had a biological safety cabinet and zeroed it out. Mm. This, this particle counter works. Went back upstairs to the ward, still got a million particles inside, greater than 0.5 microns in size. And then I put it into the diffuser, uh, the air being supplied to uh, that space, and I got 1,000 particles. Outside, well over a million, uh, almost 2 million. Uh, inside, coming from the diffuser, 1,000. Uh, the environment, uh, the breathing zone in that space was over a million what's wrong. You had a pressure differential. So you need to use some logic to find out that the building in that case was under negative pressure, sucking air in from an underground utility tunnel, which infected 21 patients. Now this stuff happens. Uh, they were they were of the caliber of an institution where they could put it on the front page uh, and have it peer-reviewed immediately. Uh, others don't do that. <laughs> they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to know, you to know about it but sometimes they come out. So it's a matter of finding the steps, the logic that's involved there, and, and certainly it is written in a few places. I've published, uh, others have published, but problem solving is, is, is very tricky, uh, and it's a combination of pressure management, uh, of finding out where the pressure is moving the air, 
uh, finding out if the filters are working properly, uh, or in one case, uh, noticing that there was a water-damaged wall with mold growing in that oncology service that I saw in the state of uh, either Missouri or Kansas, I can't remember. So, you know, you, 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 have, you, you start to follow uh, a pattern, and it's usual, usually uh, a good indoor air quality analysis uh, with, a, a, with the uh, uh, emphasis on what microorganism uh, really caused the infection. And uh, um, they're out there, uh, uh, and, and there's a logic that you use, but it really has, it's, it's really a part of problem solving. And I think most uh, people who have some indoor air quality training for pro- source management uh, have a good sense on what to do. Andy, you, you mentioned a, a particle counter. What other tools do you find you commonly use during these investigations? Uh, I three, three basic tools: a particle counter uh, uh, with a differential uh, ability for a differential, 0.5 and larger particles, uh, uh, and then uh, a pressure gauge, a pressure set, very sensitive pressure gauge. I got one that's sensitive to uh, a ten thousandth of an inch, and uh, the third thing would be a Rodak plate. Uh, uh, we do microbial analysis, and, and uh, um, that's a very quick way of doing it. Uh, um, when you start to sample, uh, um, you really need to think about the incubation temperature. If it's an infectious agent, we incubated body temperature. Uh, um, and there's usually quite a difference. In one study we published, there's an 80% difference between microorganisms that grow at body temperature versus uh, room temperature. So uh, um, you, you really need to have an idea what you're looking for and, and uh, take some, accor- some steps uh, accordingly. And what I'd like to do, we're going to break for halftime here, and when we come back, I want to follow up a little bit on the Rodak plate and the, the sampling um, and then as well the, the type of analysis you're looking for. Uh, go into a little more detail on that. So we're going to stop for 90 seconds. We're going to thank our sponsors. We'll be back in a minute for the second half of our great interview with Andy Streifel. IAQ Radio Alrighty. would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Andy Streifel from the University of Minnesota. We're talking about environmental infection control. And Andy, I want to follow up on the RODAC plates. Um, in the 
in the indoor environmental quality investigation world, um, people are always looking for quick turnaround and they want to know right away what's going on. And a lot of people have moved away from culture type sampling and they're, they're doing more non-culturing me- methods. But it sounds to me like you're, you're commonly culturing and looking for specific organisms. Is that accurate to say? Yes. And uh, if we don't have, if we just go in for an indoor air quality analysis, we wouldn't do that uh, necessarily. Uh, certainly, there is a request depending on the types of symptoms uh, and the environment we're working. We're working on a, on an indoor air quality problem now, where we feel the source is. Uh, and again, this is not a, a nosocomial or a hospital, but in our research labs, tissue culture contamination really uh, uh, puts a damper on an awful lot of, of research and. We're, we're dealing with one now where uh, our, our common source are walk-in coolers, uh, where you get mold growing on, on, on boxes and paper products. It spreads. It spreads through the tissue culture. I mean, we were able to tra- track it uh, uh, right down. So, I mean, it's, it's a matter of, of knowing what you're looking for and, and, uh, and culturing. How we would have solved that without culturing, I really don't know. Uh, uh, but, but because you know, you, when you see the microorganism, and you know what it is, and you see another organism causing a problem, and you know what it is, and they happen to be the same, and it would be, you know, you can clean the whole place up and, and just hope it goes away. Now, or you can focus. I've got another, well, before we go too much further, the RODAC plate. Can you, some of our listeners are kind of new to this as well, so can you describe for listeners what a RODAC plate is and how you use it? Generically speaking, it's a surface contact media plate. Uh, it is created by putting in slightly more, uh, um, uh, these are designed for this, slightly more media to create a concave surface, a surface that is higher than the plate's outer rims. Now, another cap sits on top of that so it does not disturb, <coughs> excuse excuse me, it does not disturb the media. So you can take that, take the cap off of it, and press it on a surface and lift off at least 50%, so it said, uh, of whatever particles are on that surface. It's, again, a sticky growth media, uh, um, whatever you're looking for, tryptocase auger, which is plate con auger, common all-purpose type of media, or you can put a fungal-specific uh, we use malt extract auger, and sometimes we end up putting chloramphenicol in it to eliminate the bacterial contamination. So we, we, we will take that and, and press it on a surface. And the nice thing about RODAC plates or surface contact media plates is the fact that, that there is a standard associated with them. Uh, for example, less than 25 colony forming units per plate is considered uh, satisfactory. Now, there you'd qualify that by saying if they were all Aspergillus fum goddess, that's not a good thing. But if they were a heterogeneous population, you know, that's pretty normal flora. Uh, but in an operating room and some of those places, we would want less than that. Uh, while 25 would be satisfactory, 25 or less, when you start getting up to 50, it becomes un- unsatisfactory and, and cleaning is, is necessary. Now, that's a very I've used that and have solved many, many uh, fungal infection problems as well as microbial infection problems associated with that. We've also started using uh, adenosine triphosphate ATP technology. There are several vendors out there that can use ATP. If you can remember your Krebs cycle, 
to to uh, uh, analyze the surface to see if it is contaminated. There is not a good correlation, but it gives you a good idea if there's any protein or or microbial uh, um, particles on that surface, uh, surface, and you can get a quantitative analysis. We use that in our patient rooms, and uh, our environmental services people do the monitoring. And if you have uh, um, to less than, um, what is it, 250 le- relative light units, uh, it, it uh, is, is a satisfactory surface. Now, you can't do that with air. Uh, you just can't do that with air. So uh, one of the big advantages, as you were pointing out, uh, for real-time analysis, and you could do that with either uh, uh, your uh, your filters that you put through, suck air through, and then get the particles, and you can do the, uh, some. I know a lot of most industrial hygienists use that methodology, the, um, the uh, cassette technology to capture whatever particles and then do visual identification. The problem being is this little round ones, little round spores, are, are uh, a, a number of microorganisms, including penicillium and aspergillus. So it's, it's, if you need to have good clearance, especially after fungal contamination, you'd still probably go to either PCR or, or perhaps uh, polymerase chain reaction or perhaps, uh, again, the, the microbial sampling. But it all depends. It all depends. Well, you, I think you anticipated a couple of questions that we have one and guest nine if if your question was not answered please send us another one and it looks like guest eight andy does use atp um kind of as a screening tool is the impression i got andy to see if the surface is a good way of looking at it okay and then um you mentioned something that I was interested in, and that's the the use of a, like a PCR polymerase chain reaction uh, to to look at uh, more in a more detailed way, I guess, as to what type of organisms are present. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about when you might use that type of sampling analysis and and how you do the sampling? Well, we used it uh, in a, in a, uh, a mold remediation project in the, on the Hawaiian Islands, and uh, it was a hospital uh, a setting, and uh, they were on a very strict timetable and wanted to expedite. And as uh, Joe pointed out, the culture method uh, uh, takes a long time. Uh, it usually takes up to five to ten days to get results back, which what does the crew during do during that time? So what they ended up doing was doing a profile of the environment to determine what fungal species were present. And uh, the uh, um, battery of analysis was based, uh, uh, during, the, during the cleanup, was based on those five fungal organisms, most prevalent fungal organisms found in that environment. And clearance was, was uh, uh, based on that process. Uh, so... If, for example, there was uh, PCR identification in the air and not on the ground, uh, they would uh, uh, clean the room and move on. If it was on the ground, on the surface, and in the air, then they would have to start over again and really clean it up. So we had a set of guidelines that followed that, and the the big advantage was we got the results back within 24 hours, uh, 48 hours, excuse me. Uh, so it had to go FedEx somewhere. They set it up. They took care of it. They shot it back. And so the turnaround time saved uh, five days. Now, 
Some people use cassettes uh, with the same with the same thing in mind. They could not do that at this institution because it was so heavily mold contaminated. Hmm. They wanted to be absolutely sure they had gotten rid of it. And so PCR being more sensitive and, and rapid, they used that. And uh, the guidance uh, worked quite well. And, before, and we've done that elsewhere, too. I want to move on and talk a little bit more about remediation and uh, contracting within these you know, health uh, care facilities. But before we do, as far as the investigation of these types of issues, what what would you tell our listeners uh, that do these types of, of investigations are the most commonly overlooked possible sources of infection in healthcare environments? Oh my goodness. Uh, now you're talking environmental infection control. Uh, um, the, it, in, in, in that case, uh, you know, it's, it's that pressure imbalance and that hidden mold culture that might be uh, above the ceiling uh, um, and lurking. I worked pediatric hospital on the West Coast. Uh, um, they, they, <laughs> the La La Land uh, is, is such that uh, they have uh, high humidity times and uh, they ended up dumping water air into uh, space above the ceiling of this pediatric hospital and cause condensation there uh, because they didn't have good latent heat removal uh, on their uh, air handling system, seeing how it's semi-arid most of the time, except early in the morning. So they had lots of condensation. Uh, mechanics went above the ceiling, popped the ceiling tile. People got sick from Aspergillus flavus down below. Above ceilings are common. Underneath sinks are common. Uh, um, it amazes me how few people look up uh, when doing an analysis, uh, uh, you you can see the spots in the corner. You can see uh, are the sinks. We wrote a paper about a, a, a sink that was just horribly contaminated. Uh, I worked on a, on a pediatric facility where the, the um, um, refrigerator was condensing and, and there was water damage behind it. And it was a refrigerator used to store mother's milk uh, for the babies in that neonatal ICU. So it, you, you never know. You use your nose to find the water damage you know, or condensation. And, and that is really where what, what we look for for mold, any history of water damage. And, and it is in, in one Virginia hospital, they, they had flashing problems. And uh, the flashing allowed water to go down through the structure, and it wasn't properly made, uh, built at that time, and, and we had water running into patient rooms uh, because the weep holes were plugged. Hmm. So you never know. Quality of work, workmanship is very important uh, uh, in the building of our buildings, what about uh, and, and it shows when, when stuff like that happens. What about things like the, the what? contents, um, things that that uh, visitors bring in, uh, the bedding, the sheets. Um, how often are those we types have, of things involved? Well, it, it, the intimacy of a patient room is really, really key. Uh, I've gone into patient rooms uh, and found uh, little dollies stuffed uh, with straw. Uh, um, we found eagle feathers in a Native American uh, um, patient's room, and we found 
Christmas trees uh, in in some patient rooms that were having problems. So it it, it really needs to be tightened up. Um, when you move in uh, to some patient treatments, such as for leukemia and bone marrow transplant, you you live in those rooms and trying to keep personal belongings out of them is very difficult. You'd be shocked what's on our clothing. I mean, our clothing, you go outside and you got a thousand colony forming units per cubic meter in the air outside and you walk through it. We did an experiment where we uh, um, laundered our clothes every day for three or four days, uh, came here to work uh, in a highly filtered environment, put on our clothes. We vacuumed it with a, uh, a slit sampler with, and a hose attached to it. Uh, we vacuumed our clothes in a set manner. Uh, we went outside. We walked around the Mississippi River for 45 minutes, and our goal was to look for two things, ragweed and mold spores. And guess what we found? Hmm. Lots of ragweed and lots of mold spores on our clothing, and very few before we started. So our, our clothing, is going back to the... the, um, the um, the whole aspect of the necktie, our clothing becomes an important factor. We did a study one time where we looked at patient isolates for aspergillus, uh, fungal isolates. We've split them into younger than 20 years old and older than 20 years old. We found a higher incidence in the pediatric population, uh, the younger ones, than we did in the older people. Uh, many more isolates. What's that attributed to? Oh, someone said they're closer to the ground. No. Could it be the fact that we cuddle our little uh, our children, our children more than we uh, cuddle our adult loved ones? Hmm. Uh, where did the cat sit before mom came uh, to visit her loved one? Uh, um, how many kids bury their nose in, in uh, their parents' uh, uh, clothing? Uh, um, it, it's certainly something uh, that we need to think about. And with the vacuuming of clothes like we did, and we've done other studies like that, you can recover a fair amount of fungus from clothes. And if you don't wash that sport coat very often and you're making rounds with it, eh, that's something to talk about. Likewise, you know, we've, uh, we've had situations where deferred maintenance in our buildings uh, uh, was uh, causing leaks. The roof was lousy. And what did they store in the space right below that leak? What was coming into the building? Physicians' white uh, jackets, their white uh, uh, lab smocks that they wear around. So you never know. You, you have to be very vigilant. There's a saying uh, in the animal uh, world, the animal husband, not husbandry, the animal science, where we have our, our uh, research animals, that if you bring nude mice, immune-compromised mice into the colony, the whole colony has to improve. Same thing goes for our patients. You bring in highly susceptible patients like cancer patients or solid organ transplant patients, uh, the whole place has got to improve in the way things the way things are, and that doesn't always happen. Andy, you're bringing out the, the listeners in a big time here. I got a, a an email, and the question they had was, um, have you had any issues with respect to private versus semi-private rooms? Private rooms are better because there's less chance for cross-transmission. They make the hospital stay more more problematic. Um, um, we went to all private rooms. There's 
more plumbing in those rooms than there is in 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 the in the uh, dual or the, the ward type uh, space because you can make uh, all of the utilities more compact with less patients. So there is good uh, with the isolation, the ability to contain, but it's bad because the capital costs are higher. So uh, in the long run, I believe that we're, we're better off with, with single occupancy rooms. However, we also know that note, and I sit on these committees, that in the program planning, if it is important to have more than one patient in the room, uh, let's say OBGYN, um, labor and delivery, that, that would still be okay if it's part of the program plan. But that's not my judgment. Uh, I only know that I was part of the, the process of trying to figure out whether or not we should go to single uh, or multi-person uh, rooms. So I think they're better. Okay, we've got another text question, and then I want to get into the remedi- the construction side of things, but this sort of is uh, construction-related. The, the listener asks, um, has progress been made in the integration of building science into healthcare facility construction? We certainly like to think it has. Uh, I am privileged, I have the extreme privilege of helping build maybe five to ten I'm going to have ballpark uh, major hospitals, including three of them here on this campus. Uh, so I'm closer to 10. I, I, and, and what I see happening, especially in other countries, is, is a much more serious approach to that. Here, everything's the dollar amount per square foot, and where does the risk really lie? Uh, um, the boss code, uh, for sure, is, uh, is uh, fire code. So what we've tried to do in infection prevention, what I personally felt was important is that we understand what regulation there is out there, for example, fire, uh, and how can we best manage uh, um, fire and infection prevention at the same time because they're both about aerosol control. Smoke kills more than fire. So if you can control smoke in your building, more than likely you can control spores, especially during construction. So whenever we invoke interim life safety, we want to make sure those pressures are appropriate because they suck. They're pulling it out. They're pulling that clean air into the dirty environment rather than blowing uh, dirty air into the clean environment. And that clean to dirty airflow is, is, is essential, especially during construction, because risk isn't equal during construction. Demolition is the worst. Uh, and maybe discovery is worse than <laughs> demolition because they go in and look for the the shutoff valves and all that kind of stuff. And there's real progress, uh, I feel, in in the way we work in occupied buildings and what we expect. We've come a long ways to keep rock off the slab so that we don't have wicking of our our sheetrock. The most common source of mold in most hospitals would be behind the the, um, uh, coving. Uh, the floor coving, mm-hmm. uh, um, water, they, you have vinyl, they flood the floor, it gets underneath of that, it wicks up, somebody comes along and removes the coving for doing something, and bingo, you've released an aerosol into that environment. So it, it, it's a matter of, of figuring out all those things, and we've not come a long way uh, uh, in doing that. Uh, we published a book with American uh, Practitioners of Infection Control, APIC, on construction management in healthcare, and, and in though that kind of, of, of design 
we, we really think hard about what we do for for infection prevention. So yeah. it's, there's a lot there. Uh, I'm involved, like I say, with many hospitals, and, and certainly it is written, and I could start talking about it, but yeah, I don't think the program lasts that long. <laughs> I appreciate that. Hey, Cliff, I want to I want to make sure you get a chance to um, ask a question. I know you had the one on sterilization systems, but uh, your call. Yeah, actually, um, that would probably be a good one. Uh, Andy, have you had any experience with either of these mobile sterilization systems, such as vaporized hydrogen peroxide, uh, UV light, or um, you know, some of the mobile systems even that use, um, yes. I, I, yeah. So what, what's your, well, what's your you know, we, we use them all. We use them all. We have, uh, we have the UV light, um, according to what we hear that seems to be working, um, whether or not it has uh, made a difference in, especially in our C. diff, I have not garnered that as being uh, um, completely assured right now, but there seems to be some success with that. Vaporized hydrogen peroxide um, is is uh, also used. There are three different systems out there. Which one is best uh, um, is is always uh, difficult to ascertain. Uh, so it, it they are, they're being used uh, um, of the scourge of Healthcare today and infections is that C diff, and so we need something that that would work well in in managing that. I think one of the biggest uh, um, improvements we've made, uh, besides the C diff and the, I mean, besides the uh, VHP vaporized hydrogen peroxide and um, UV light, um, is is the fact that we put bleach into wipes. Uh, and that really helps the formulation because it's that contact time that really is important. Uh, um, I, I don't like the idea of using any kind of aerosolized uh, chemical because the truth of the matter is, uh, you and I've asked this of every vendor, I said someone just died, there are body fluids, we've removed the body, we've got to clean it up. Can we just bring the VHP in and turn it on and sanitize everything so we don't have to worry about what's there? No, you got to clean it first. So, you know, there, it's, it's a matter of what kind of work ethic the individuals have. And of course that's as unpredictable as <laughs> the wind direction. Uh, so you never know, you never know. So there, there, we, it's a two-step process. You got to clean it and then you use the VHP or, UV to to manage uh, uh, the rest of it. Uh, certainly, they're helpful. Certainly, some people have uh, we had their biostatisticians come up with the right numbers to demonstrate that it works. Uh, but you know, it's 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 tough. Chlorine dioxide. I was involved with a hospital that had to, was decontaminated with chlorine dioxide, and uh, through hearsay, uh, I heard that the electronics uh, and it were corroded uh, in that process. So. That wasn't a pretty picture as far as uh, um, the maintaining the environment, uh, environmental integrity, and not getting it chewed up by the chemical you put in the air. Uh, they, we have to take that into consideration. I'm helping with a uh, infectious disease hospital in Singapore, and and we're very concerned about the, the materials that are used that won't be degraded, if you will, with the harsh chemicals that that are. Uh, 
are deemed necessary for some of these strange uh, unknown uh, diseases that show up. And Ebola has caught our imagination as one of them. So uh, uh, we certainly need to think about a lot of things, uh, including uh, aerosol decontamination of, of our rooms. So we certainly have seen them. We, we use them, uh, especially in our BSL facilities. Uh, and, and so they're, they're here to stay. Andy, we, we're running short Thank on you. time. I hope you could stay over for a couple minutes anyway. Um, but sure. I've got a text question from a listener that kind of is similar to one we had uh, proposed asking you anyway. Legionella uh, is the topic of the day. How should building managers, uh, how should builders, builders manage Legionella risk during construction and prior to occupancy? Uh, I think <laughs> I think one of the things that that uh, is is too bad is that we put so much emphasis on Legionella. There is a whole myriad, I mean a huge myriad of of other microorganisms that develop resistance that we're also very concerned about, and and certainly that is something that that we pay very close attention to. For example, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Uh, uh, Legionella is is uh, um, certainly uh, a gram-negative organism. Uh, if we can control Legionella, generally we can control others, but that is not necessarily true because uh, um, what we found is that Legionella shows up more where there's free available chlorine and stagnation. Uh, and if you look at building, for example, a hospital or any building, let's say even a hotel, uh, uh, as they punch list uh, all of those sinks to demonstrate that they work properly, they then sit for months. And in some instances, in some of the hospitals that I've worked in, uh, the water will sit for six months before it's used. The biofilm that's developed becomes very difficult to to deal with, and we're trying to work with methods to try to keep that water moving during the construction phase. Uh, and, and certainly that has, has caused problems in hospitals, uh, which I was alerted to through the lawyers, uh, and again, because of, the, of that kind of thing, those cases of Legionella, due to improper design of the water distribution system, uh, won't be discussed much uh, uh, in, in, in the literature. So, you know, it's really too bad that we're, we're, we're not tr- learning from that, but, but in the reality is that there are lots of bacteria. We do not live in a sterile environment, least of all the water that we drink. Uh, and uh, we, we have to look at many respects as a probiotic, it's when you become unhealthy that the risk really goes up. Uh, you become neutropenic for one reason or another. You develop uh, a bad uh, um, something or another, and then you require steroids or, or something along those lines, and, and you start to change the immune system and the, who, who becomes sick, uh, um, those that are, are compromised. So uh, it's... it's, it's uh, Good news for those who we've been able to um, treat and, and improve their lives, but it's also bad news for them because they become slightly uh, uh, suppressed uh, to the point where common environmental microbes, including Legionella, uh, because if you look at the risk factors, uh, it, it, it uh, pretty much points to that kind of thing. Smokers, diabetics, uh, um, elderly uh, are all uh, at risk to Legionella, 
Uh, but then that's saying nothing for the thousands of other microorganisms out there that are a common part of our lives. So uh, they too can become uh, an issue. So it's it's not just Legionella. It's all bacteria that reach a certain a certain number. But yet, if you knew what you had in your ice cube, you'd think twice about it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, before before we go, uh, I I want to mention a document that. Um, I believe is public domain so that we can put up for listeners. It's Airborne Infectious Disease Management Methods for Temporary Negative Pressure Isolation. I, I looked over the document. I thought it was excellent. I know you were a big part of developing that document. And I'd like to put that out for uh, listeners to look at if it's okay with you. Please, please do. There was a, a document that was intended to, to manage, help manage, a pandemic cluster that would happen anywhere, uh, um, and uh, it, it, if a pandemic occurs, we, we expect our carpenters to be able to go in and set up uh, isolation capability, and that was a guidance to use portable filters and, uh, and duct tape and plastic, uh, and then how to validate uh, the environment with particle counters and, and pressure gauges. So uh, we got uh, uh, your money, our government money, to do this, and it is very helpful to in for instruction on how to do construction in healthcare, and I put one sentence in for that <clears throat> for that uh, specific reason. So thank you for bringing that up. I will get it out. I think it's excellent, and and it has multiple uses. It's not just healthcare. I think there are uh, many places that could use this type of guidance. Uh, the last question I have for you is if you could look into your you know, crystal ball and look at um, what, what kind of issues you see coming down the road. What are the trends uh, that people should be watching for with respect to environmental infection control? Water quality. Water quality is going to be much bigger now that uh, ASHRAE standard 188 is a reality. Uh, um, all hospitals and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, any hospital that receives that funding from them should have a water management plan, shall have a water management plan. Uh, what that means is you need to know where the risk is in your facility and how best to protect those at risk. Uh, and that is specifically for hospitals and uh, hospitality industry. Uh, the stash rate standard was intended for those two. And now CMS, uh, which is the big kid on the block that has lots of money in the pocket and they won't give it to you unless you comply, uh, will be there. So I say to make it short and sweet, water quality uh, in our buildings is going to become a big deal. Thank you, Andy. Cliff, any final questions? No, I'm good, Jeff. Thanks. And I, I want to apologize to the listeners that had a few more questions. I just couldn't get to them all, but uh, great questions from every, everyone. Thank you. And um, Cliff will have his blog, and Andy will send it to you to review. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, present here today and hopefully uh, try and answer some questions. And yeah, I was successful if I hoped I was successful. But anyway, um, if people want to get in touch with me through email, I'm easy to find on the Google uh, Strifle Andrew, Minnesota, and, and uh, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Andy, thank you. And, and I've already had four or five people 
text in what a great show this was, and I, I've got to agree, it's uh, going to go up as one of our favorites. So this is Radio Joe Hughes uh, saying thank you, Andy Streifel, um, University of Minnesota. Great Great job. Uh, thanks to you. Thanks to uh, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. You probably got a sore hand from writing notes for the blog this week. Um, also want to thank John. You got to have faith uh, at the controls. Great job. Most importantly, those of you listening in, our growing group of loyal listeners, uh, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.